chapter 14 today. So we're actually we're moving to a new chapter. So here we go. Well, as many as you know, uh, I'm kind of a history geek, and I find the story of humanity to be pretty fascinating. And one of the things that I find particularly fascinating is trying to understand what motivates people. You know, sometimes it's, when you read through the scripture and or when you read the story of, you know, history, sometimes it's big events that motivate people to do what they do. Sometimes it's a, a motivation out of love, or it's a motivation out of vengeance. Uh, for most people, there's kind of this complex layer and, and, and latticework of events that have leads to a person's brokenness, which sometimes can motivate them to do things, or a sense of grandeur that can, that can motivate them. I find the whole thing kind of yeah, fascinating. And the Bible, as you know, if you've read the scriptures, we have some very complex and fascinating characters to choose from in the Bible when it comes to looking at, at these deeply, sometimes flawed, well, almost always flawed, but uh, sometimes heroes which reach to spectacular heights or, or incredible lows. For example, you have prophets that place themselves into physical misery in order to get their message across. We have kings that start out brave and hopeful, but who end up tired and sinful. You have simple everyday people like fishermen and tax collectors who end up changing the world. And you have repentant devils who become humbly flawed but redeemed saints. And in all of these stories, though, there's, there's a common thread. And, and if you've been around for a while, you know what that common thread is, and that is that they all suffer. That common thread of suffering, of, of personal setbacks, Sometimes deep personal failures of morality, doubts that they have, confusion, disappointment. And some die in the midst of their suffering. For example, Samson, the story of Samson. He dies uh, in this, this kind of crossroads of redemption and suffering. The, the first king of Israel, Saul, he dies in battle in a sense of mental torment and suffering. Jeremiah the prophet just kind of disappears out of history. We know that he's taken into exile into Egypt and you never hear of him again. He died far away from home. The apostle James, he dies early in the, in the history of the, of the church. He's beheaded. And one of the questions that people have is, why was James uh, beheaded but Peter saved? You know, there's, there's these things that go on and sometimes we don't really understand what is going on. The apostle Paul when he first is, is called by God to be a, uh, a, uh, the bringer of the gospel to both the Gentiles and the Jews, this idea of suffering is, is almost, it is right at the very beginning of his ministry. It says this, there's this man, Ananias, that was to go and to talk to Paul after Paul had been struck blind on the road to Damascus. And it says, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, speaking about Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, which sounds great. And then he, God immediately follows it up by saying this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And in that suffering, Paul finds a closeness to Christ. And that was that passage we read out of Philippians, when even when he's in prison, he says this is actually a good thing. It's, it's actually encouraging other people to speak the gospel because they can see that if I can take it, basically they can take it too. However, in my estimation, there are few who are as highly regarded by God, especially given by the words of Jesus, very highly regarded by God, and yet suffered as deeply as John the Baptist. 
And today in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, it's the last time we're going to visit with the story of John the Baptist. It's at least the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that we've, we've had reference to him. But this is kind of the final, the final story. And so let's go ahead and read through it, and then we'll talk about it. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch. Now this is not Herod the Great. This is Herod's son. Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus. He said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and they told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Now, in all the Gospels, John the Baptist plays a significant role. And this is, this is important because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of accounts that go together. But John is probably the latest Gospel that was written. And so John doesn't feel like it's necessary, the Gospel of John, doesn't feel like it's necessary to put in all the same details. For example, the Gospel of John does not have the Lord's Supper as it is presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He has something similar, but if you read the Gospel of John, he doesn't include the, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. He doesn't include that in his Gospel. He includes a different time when Jesus says, my body is the bread and all that, but it's a different time. But all of them present John the Baptist. And in all the Gospels, if you take all the accounts, you get very different perspectives of John, and we get a fairly well-rounded understanding of John. In fact, in the Gospel of John, again, written by the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, we, we get an understanding that, that the disciples of John the Baptist, some of them were the first disciples of Jesus. They went from John the Baptist to Jesus. And he's called the Baptist because he came with the message that the kingdom of God was coming. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And the way that one repented was to come out and to be baptized. They call it ceremonial washing. We'll actually see it in the scripture when, when the disciples, his disciples feel like Jesus is taking John's message. Uh, they talk about it being ceremonial washing because the word baptize is actually a Greek word, baptizo, which means to immerse in order to change. And so John the baptizer is one that's going out doing this ceremonial washing. And he's an interesting guy because... He's a man whose birth was also a miracle. His birth was foretold by an angel, just like his cousin Jesus. Though interestingly, where, John the where Jesus' birth was foretold to the Virgin Mary, John the Baptist's uh, birth was foretold to his father and also told to a woman that was considered too old to have a birth. 
too, too old to have a child. And so they're kind of different but the same. Uh, like Isaac's son Esau, John was the elder of two, uh, in this case, two cousins, who had a very similar path but different. And Esau was eclipsed by Jacob in the Old Testament. In that same way, John the, John the Baptist is eclipsed by Christ. And he's also portrayed as a man who understands his mission, though. John the Baptist doesn't seem to struggle too much with the idea that Jesus eclipses his, his prominence because he knows that that's his role. His role is to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John the Baptist, nowhere in the Scriptures do you ever see him showing any kind of resentment over the fact that Jesus begins to ascend and John begins to, to lower in his, his influence. But his disciples, however seem to really struggle with the idea that John the Baptist's star is going down while Jesus' star is rising. And, you, and when we read through the Gospel of Matthew in particular, we see that, that John's disciples seem to have a little bit of an issue with Jesus. They don't understand what he's doing, and in fact, they even confront him on a few aspects. And, the, and his disciples, John's disciples, place themselves on the side of the Pharisees. For example says this in the Gospel of John. An argument developed between some... Well, this is, this is before the, the one with the Pharisees. This is where you see his disciples struggling. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over matters of ceremonial washing. We would call this baptism. They came to John and said to him, his disciples said, said to John the Baptist, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. So this is, this, that man that, that John was talking about is Jesus. And John's disciples see that the people are going over to Jesus, and they're like, what's happening here? They're, they're concerned about John's legacy, but John's not concerned. It says to this, To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said that I am not the Christ, but I was sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That, voice is my, that joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. And so, but where John seems to have peace with that, his disciples don't. And when John uh, continues in his ministry, and it's interesting when you read the scriptures, John and Jesus uh, begins his ministry with the same message of John. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus goes on and says, repent for the kingdom of God is here in, in him. John continues with his message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But John also gets a little political. And he finds himself at odds with Herod, and we read the story there. And he's, and he's arrested. He's put in jail. And John's disciples don't like this. And in the, in the, in the, as I was saying, in the times we see John's disciples talking to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a bit of a confrontation. For example, this one. John's disciples came and asked him, being Jesus, how is it that we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. That's a challenge that they're putting forth before Jesus. Why is it that we and the Pharisees seem more committed to our faith than your disciples? Is essentially what they're saying. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? And then he goes on and he, and he kind of fleshes out this idea. Then we read later in the Gospel of Matthew, and again we've already talked about these, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one that was to come? 
Or should we expect someone else? So we can see that among John and his disciples, Jesus is a confusing character to them. They had this plan, they had this vision, and it's not, it's not working out that way. And, Jesus said, and it says, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cured. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And he goes on to say even more about this. But we can see in this that there's this tension that goes on. And so, in the passage we're reading today, Matthew gives us closure to John's story. And he tells the story in kind of an unusual way. He begins by making a statement which is taking place right now in the ministry of Christ. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work with him, in him. So the story, so this is taking place right now in Jesus' ministry. And it's saying that Herod is freaked out. Herod is worried because Herod believes that Jesus is a reincarnation of John the Baptist. And Herod believes that the powers of John the Baptist have been transferred over to Jesus. So Herod is struggling with the guilt and the fear that comes from the fact that he executed, Herod, uh, he executed John the Baptist. And then the way that uh, Matthew tells the story, he then goes back and he fills in the blanks. Why is Herod freaking out? Because, and then he tells the story about this Herodias, this relationship, this dance, and that John the, Baptist, uh, John the Baptist was executed at the hands of Herod. So Herod is, Herod is worried. Herod is a superstitious guy, and he believes that that's what's going on. And this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we hear that John is actually dead. Up to this point, you know, we haven't heard that. The last we had heard about John, he was in prison. So this is the first time we've heard this. So Matthew is kind of backfilling the story a bit. And it's not a story about a heroic death. It's a story at the, about a death at the hands of a scheming, sinful woman and a lusty, sinful man. And it's a, and it's a story that, that has within it a very confusing and, and twisted uh, relationships between this royal family. Like most royal families, the family of Herod was inbred. They were backbiting and traitorous to each other. And if you look at the stories of monarchy throughout history, even up to today, you see that same sort of thing, that backbiting, that infighting, and a certain amount of inbreeding. And so I'm going to try and just for the sake of the story, help you understand a little bit about what John the Baptist walked into when he began to say to Herod that he could not take this woman as his wife. Now, Herod the Great was the king during Jesus' birth. Herod the Great He's called the Great because he was a general. He fought on the side of Augustus uh, when Cleopatra and, and uh, Antony forces were defeated. Augustus became the Caesar. Herod was, he was actually raised in Rome. He was more Roman than he was anything else. And he's given the territory of Palestine to rule over as a kind of puppet king to the Roman Empire. And he's called the Great because he, he built a lot of stuff. There's a lot of archaeology you can even see today that he built, and, that, and he was quite innovative in some of his archaeology. He had ten wives, and from those ten wives, you can imagine, he had many children. Uh, the ones that are important to us today are these uh, five. And if you notice that the names of the children, this is kind of something that would happen a lot, and this is why it's confusing to follow who is who in the ancient past, is they would often take names of people who were prominent. 
So he has one son named Alexander because Alexander the Great. He has two kids that have Philip in their name. Philip was Alexander's father. back. He was Philip of Macedon. This Aristobulus IV, he's not the fourth in that he's a line like, like junior and senior. He just takes the name Aristobulus because he was a Greek general that was famous back in the day. And so it becomes, and, they all, and several of Herod's sons take Herod's name. So you have Herod, Herod, and Herod. It's like there's a boxer named George Foreman. Have you ever heard of George Foreman, the boxer? He was, he was big in the time of Muhammad Ali, fought Muhammad Ali. George Foreman named all of his kids George. Every one of his sons are named George, and all his daughters are named Georgina. Yeah, and, and, he's, and he's very open about this. He's like, yeah, I named him after, you know, a great person. So he named all his sons George, all his daughters Georgina, and it's only by their second name that they're, they're differentiated. Now, you know, whatever. So this is kind of what happens here. Now, Aristobulus has a daughter named Herodias. So Herodias is the daughter of Aristobulus, who is the half-brother to Herod Philip, half-brother to Herod Antipas. Then Herod the Great gets nervous about his sons, and he has these two killed off. He also has an earlier one killed off in the time of Christ. Actually, his first son, he has him killed off. At the same time, he has the babies that are killed in the time, in the, around that same time when he has the babies killed in Bethlehem. Then he makes his granddaughter, Herodias, marry her half-uncle, Philip. Okay, so this is, this is twisted. And from Herod and, and Herodias, they have a daughter named Salome. Salome is, is the one that did the dance. From this guy named Josephus, who is a, a Jewish historian who has a serious agenda, so you have to kind of take what he says with a grain of salt, he says in his Antiquities of the Jews, which is a book that is available to read if you want to read it, he says that Herodias pushed for a divorce from Herod Philip, or Herod II, who's not the same as Philip the Tetrarch, in order to marry his half-brother, Herod Antipas. So this is the twisted family that John the Baptist is dealing with. And when John the Baptist begins to point out that Herod Antipas shouldn't be taking the wife of his brother, then Herod Antipas and Herodias have John the Baptist arrested. And this is why, this is the, the spider's nest of sin that John walks into when he says, you shouldn't do this. He has, I don't think John probably realized how twisted this family really was. So they arrest him and put him in jail. Then Herod Antipas's stepdaughter slash niece from his brother's side slash niece once removed on his own wife's side dances for him and the implications throughout history is that, that he, uh, he lusts for her. And so we have in the scripture here, it says, Herod had John arrested, bound him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's, Philip wife, brother's Philip's wife. For John had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. So this selfish, scheming, lusty, twisted family has the final say in the life of John the Baptist. And I don't know if you can see the picture that well, but this is, this is a famous you know, picture in art where it's Salome, the head of John the Baptist, being presented to Herodias. And when you think about this, this is just... John the Baptist said he wasn't worthy to untie the sandals of, of Jesus, untie the sandals of the Messiah. 
And if John the Baptist felt he was unworthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah, then these people are supremely unworthy to have anything to do with the life of John the Baptist. The last person that really should have any right to speak into the life of this prophet, whom Jesus says was the greatest of all prophets, they have no right to touch him. They are so beneath who John is. And yet they are the ones that have the last say in his life. And so, after she dances and Herod Antipas is, makes this big proclamation, he doesn't, we don't hear it in the, the Matthew's Gospel, but in other Gospels, he makes a proclamation that Salome can have anything up to half his kingdom. And now when he says that, he's definitely keeping things within the family still. You know, he's not risking any kind of power because Salome is his niece slash stepdaughter. And Herodotus tells her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Why? Because he spoke against her. It's just pure vindictiveness. She is vindictive. And she wants to see him die because he spoke against her and embarrassed her publicly. And Herod doesn't want to do this. Not because Herod cares about John. He's afraid that the people's reaction would be a revolt if he were to kill John. But he's also too proud to back down. He made this promise. And so he does it. And John the Baptist is beheaded. And the scriptures tell us then that John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and they told Jesus. And when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus doesn't have much time alone, though, because in the very next sentence in that same passage in, in verse 13, it says, Then the people realized he was gone, and they began to go look for him. I've often felt for John. Again, a man whose birth was foretold by angels and whose death was at the hand of these petty, sinful schemers. Again, where John the Baptist said he wasn't even worthy to untie the, the sandals of the Messiah, this twisted family had no business laying their hand upon him. This is a man of whom Jesus himself said, What did you go out into the desert to see? A, wee, a reed swayed by the wind? In other words, did you go out into the desert to see someone who's just kind of weak and vacillating on his message? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Someone that, that is a, an impressive presenter of himself? He says, no. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. John was in the desert. And he was a man with a mission. Who would you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. Sometimes it feels like the bad guys win. You know, when it comes to life and, and the way in this temporary existence, sometimes it not only feels like the bad guys win, sometimes the bad guys do win. Sometimes innocence is sacrificed, the weak are subjugated to the strong, mercies forgotten, and pride destroys. And those who strive into danger with this faithful belief and hope and light sometimes are snuffed out and all seems lost. And it happens time and time again. 
It happens in the, the heroes of the Bible, all the way from Adam and Eve, who after they were thrown out from the Garden of Eden, had to endure the heartache of one son murdering another. It happened to Noah, who saw his whole world destroyed because people wouldn't listen and wouldn't repent of their sin. It happened to David, whose life fell apart after his sin with Bathsheba. Not just his life, but his family's life falls apart. Jeremiah, we already mentioned, he saw Jerusalem destroyed, and then he's taken into exile. And we don't really know Jeremiah's fate in Egypt. All the way to Jesus, who on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes it looks like evil winds in the world. And that's something that we as Christians sometimes struggle with because we're always like, everything's going to be great because I follow Jesus. And the truth is, we live in a fallen world. We have an active enemy in Satan, and there is sin that permeates the world from top to bottom. And this is not our final home. And in this temporary world, sometimes bad guys win. Sometimes it appears that evil overcomes the good. But we can never forget, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, be we like John the Baptist in prison or like the Apostle Paul in prison, if we be like the many martyrs of the early church or even into, throughout the 20th century and 21st century, more people died. Did you know more people died because of their faith in the 20th century than in all the other centuries combined? The reason why we don't hear about it very often is because it didn't happen in the West. It happened in the East. But there are many, many martyrs for the sake of Christianity throughout the 20th century. But the resurrection for us is the sign that evil doesn't get the last word. Even if followers of Jesus suffer as they have over the centuries, and even though we are promised more suffering as the end approaches, we have to remember that the resurrection is that tangible proof that we can hang on to, that, we have the, that God has the final word when it comes to evil, that God has the final word when it comes to sin and death. There's a lot of theological debate about was the resurrection necessary for the effect of the salvation of Christ to, to come into our lives, or was it really for our sake to have a see that indeed the bad guys didn't get the last word upon the cross of Christ? And it's a, it's a deep question, and I don't have the answer. I'm not going to give an answer to what I think about that, because I do think, without a doubt, that without the resurrection, we wouldn't have Christianity. Because people, even if... Christ's sacrifice was effective without the resurrection. Without him rising from the grave, people would have thought, well, there's another good man down. And his name would have been lost in history. But the resurrection, this is why there is people that want to say the resurrection never happened. Your response to them would be, then how do you explain the church? Because Jesus was not the first and only one to ever be uh, crucified by the Romans. Many were crucified by the Romans during a revolt of a slave revolt that was led by Spartacus. When that thing finally was put down, the commanding, uh, the, the consul of Rome who led the, the, the attack that finally took down Spartacus had people crucified along the Appian Way for two miles. Two miles of crosses with people hanging on them, leading to Rome. And they hung there even after they died just to remind anyone that would rise up against Rome that this is what you can expect. 
So Jesus wasn't the first one crucified by the Romans. He wasn't the last one crucified by the Romans. He's the only one that rose again. And by rising again, there's the, there's the proof of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And anyone that tries to tell you the resurrection is just some kind of thing in people's minds that never physically happened, then the answer to that is how do you explain the church? Because do you know any name of any one of those who were crucified for two miles long on the Appian Way leading to Rome? Can you name any single one of them? Because Spartacus wasn't one of them. Spartacus' body was never found. Who? Anyone? Come on, there's thousands along there. There's got to be someone whose name you know. No, we don't know any of the names. Why? Because they just died. If Jesus had not resurrected from the dead physically, that people could see and touch and hear, then we wouldn't be here today. And so we need to remember this. As we go into times of difficulty, wherever they are in our life, if it's just kind of difficulty that you're struggling with because you feel like your life is kind of going down the tubes, or if it's serious persecution... And you're wondering, like John the Baptist, is this, is God with me? Is he hearing me? The answer is yes. He is hearing you. And when you join your life to the life of Christ through faith, die to self so that the, the, the Holy Spirit of God is in you and walks with you and guides you in all that you are, which is the symbol of baptism. In chapter 6 of Romans says, those of us who have been buried with Christ in baptism has also been joined with him in his resurrection. That's a paraphrase. Paul again says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When by faith you recognize the sacrifice and the victory of Christ over sin and death is effective for your sin too. That sacrifice was for you too. And by faith you accept that sacrifice as yours. And you ask the Holy Spirit to forgive, you ask God to forgive you of your sins, the Holy Spirit will indwell you, then you are brought from death into life. And I don't know what was going through John's mind at the end of his life as, as, as time was drawing near. I hope that the angels ministered to him the same way that they ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was under a lot of stress. But I don't know that. But be that as it may, over the centuries, many martyrs, be they men or women, have given their lives because of their faith in Christ. But unlike John, the Christian martyrs throughout the centuries have died knowing that in Jesus Christ, they already have victory. They already have victory over sin and death. And I think as a church, we need to understand this. Because one of the things I worry about the church, the church has gotten so into their, their comfort. They've got this whole health and prosperity gospel is just setting people up to be disappointed. Because that, the teaching is, well, if God loves you, you're going to be wealthy and healthy. Well, what if God puts you in that same place of, of persecution, of toughness, that he's put Christians throughout the centuries? These folks that believe Christianity is all cotton candy and sunshine, they're going to fall because they're not receiving the expectation that they thought it should be. But if you read the Bible, one thing that Jesus promises us, besides eternal life with him, on this earth... It's difficulty. He promises us that because we are going against the values of the culture. And every time the culture tries to change the tra trajectory of the church and the church bends that way, the church loses its power. It's throughout history. And when the church says, no, we're not going to bend to the trajectory of society, then society gets angry. 
But this is nothing new. And it's going to be this way. It's going to even get more intense as the end time draws closer. And as a church, I don't know when the end time is. I'm not in the business of making up dates and all that sort of stuff. But I will say this. We have to know what's coming because for us to be surprised as Christians that there might be persecution just means that we don't know our Bibles very well or we're following some false teaching. So I want to tell you this as we go into the future. And like, yeah, this COVID time has been tough too. We need to keep our heads up. Keep your heads up. Things may look tough. Some of you are going through personal difficulties. Some of you are going through financial difficulties. Some of you are, are, are here hoping you don't get sent back to your country of, of origin where the government oppresses your faith in Christ. But keep your head up. Because even though things may look tough, in spite of the gains that evil makes in the world, the defeat of evil has already been assured. Through the resurrection of Christ, there is a tangible proof of his victory over sin and death. And this cannot be taken away. It is, an, it is an event of history, not an event of fantasy. It is an event of history. And by that event, you are here today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whatever you go through, it doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is the victor over sin and death. And if you, like thousands, millions maybe, of your forefathers and foremothers in the faith find yourself under persecution, even find yourself like, like uh, John the Baptist facing execution, know that you are a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus even said, don't be afraid of the one that can kill this body. Be afraid of the one that can bring about an eternal death. And if you are in Christ, no matter what, know that this is temporary. You should know that as you build your personal fortunes that what you're building is temporary. You should know as you seek your career that what you're doing is temporary. And you should know even when you face difficulties that those are temporary. Everything in this is temporary except one thing. The Word of God made flesh and your relationship with Him. That is the only thing that goes into eternity. Apostle Paul said at the end, there's faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love because faith will be Faith won't be faith when you have Jesus right in front of you. You won't have to believe it by faith. He'll be right there. Like, I don't have to believe by faith that Rebecca's uh, uh, in the front row here. I know she's there. It's not an act of faith. It's an act of fact. And I'm not going to have to hope, like some of you are hoping that the sermon's going to wrap up here pretty soon. Because it's a fact. I have it in front of me. I have a blank sheet with only one more sentence there. It's going to happen. And hope will be realized in just a few minutes. But love? Love is never done. Love is always part of relationship. Love is always growing. It's always developing. And in the end, the greatest of these is love. And it's by love that God sent his only begotten son to you, to the world, so that those who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Life. And I want you to remember this, too. These are the words of Jesus right after he really builds up John the Baptist. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then he says this. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that is talking about you. Why are you greater than John the Baptist? Because you are connected to the life of 
of Jesus Christ. Never forget that. No matter what your circumstances, never forget that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you have taught us through your word. We thank you for your spirit that guides us. And Lord, we thank you for the stories of, of people that go through difficult times for they remind us that our difficult times are by no means unique to us. And so as we uh, are reminded of John the Baptist and, and the struggles that he went through, we thank you for him being a man that knew his mission, that stayed with his mission. And even when he wondered, is this, is this, right? is this working out the way it's going to work out? He never denied knowing you. He never denied the kingdom of God. And we do pray that in t- situations that we find ourselves in when it looks like all is lost, that everything we've hoped for has just been vanity, it's been lost, that we will remember that things cannot be taken away that have been set within the history. And your resurrection, your life, your death, and your resurrection is a historical fact to which we cling to to bring us through times of sunshine and times of storm. And may we remember that and seek you more deeply, especially in those times of the darkness, to know you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.